I live in a very big country, Sweden, almost as big as Spain, and it's a very long country, and we do have night trains, certainly. Some of them are run on commercial terms, some of them are subsidized after competitive tendering, of course. If services can be run on commercial terms, they should. If they cannot, we must have competitive tendering, not direct awards. You are listening to Transport for Future, a new podcast series by the Transport Area of the Florence School of Regulation, dedicated to European transport regulation. Stay with us for a deep dive into burning transport sector issues, including digitalization, financing, and the sector's recovery and resilience post-COVID-19. Hello, I'm your host, Juan Montero, director of the Transport Chapter of the Florence School of Regulation. Today, in our podcast, we are having a conversation with Bertil Highland, who is scientific advisor to uh, the Florence School of Regulation, the Transport Chapter. Hello, Highland. How are you? Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Juan. Uh, we are going to have a conversation about uh, railway regulation and policy. I would like to start with a question. You're a, a very good witness of, of the reform of the railway industry. For a decade, you follow the reform of the industry as an analyst in the Swedish National Road and Transport Research Institute. So, so you have been following the process of reform of the industry of the European Union over the last 30 years. But still, do you think, why, first of all, why do you think the reform has been going on for so long? I mean, 30 years is a very long period for an industry to be under reform. And do you think that the reform has been completed? Oh, no, it certainly has not been completed. And uh, because there are so many differences between the member states. And I have a feeling that some member states, they do not really know what kind of railway they want or what kind of railway they need. They should have a long-term goal, let's say, 20 years ahead with, with, with check-up points in the, in the meantime. And they should decide, this is the right way we need, the right way we want in 25 years, and then set up intermediate goals and decide what kind of measures they need to take. I, but I don't think many countries have done that. What, what is your opinion, Juan? I, I agree with you that there were not very clear um, objectives. And I think this is also related to this fact of having a, a sector that has been under reform for three decades, which introduced a lot of uncertainty. And then at the same time, the idea that uh, there should be also some kind of leadership from the European Commission, from the European Union, with which sometimes has also triggered um, a reaction from the member states in the sense that, okay, that's for Brussels to decide, maybe not so much for us. I, I don't know if you see that happening. I mean, you, you were a national expert in, in the European Commission for a couple of years. So I don't know, what's your view of there, that tension between the, the Commission and the member states? Yes, uh, this brings me on to uh, the matter of interoperability. The Commission has tried to improve interoperability in a wide sense because interoperability certainly leads to, to lower costs and should lead to a better market share for, for rail. But the Commission, this leads on a little bit to our second item here, but the Commission doesn't quite have the muscle to, to pressure the uh, 
the mem member states. Member states themselves, they certainly must realize that we need action. They can't blame the, com I think it's really poor then to, to blame the commission for, for, for this or that. And if we want to be, well, I'll get back to a more difficult point uh, in a while here. We, we do not have to agree on everything. Okay, um, so, I mean, you said that reform has not been completed. I mean, what are, do you think the, uh, the more important milestones? I mean, what is lacking in terms of, uh, uh, yeah, to complete the, the reform of the sector? A couple of years ago, I did some small uh, evaluation work for the commission, and I asked uh, some of the people in the, let's say, European rail sector, what were the, what were the real breakthroughs? And one, one interoperability breakthrough that was mentioned is multi-system locomotive. But there are still so many obstacles concerning regulation or a, a lot of technical detail. I know that the fourth railway package wants to do away with these things, but well, seriously, now here comes something that people will hate me for, but I don't care. I think that really a couple of member states they should not have railways at all. They don't have the market for that. Some member states, they have so little passenger traffic that they should simply skip it and concentrate on improving freight instead. What do you think about that, Brian? Well, I, I agree with you that railways, I think it's, it's a very powerful system, but at the same time, because it's so powerful uh, in terms of having the ability to move large crowds very efficiently, it should be limited to those services where there are those large crowds to be moved efficiently. Yes. That, that might mean that some small countries, there might be no role for uh, railways, that's possible, but certainly even in larger countries, railways should be limited to those um, routes, those connections where really there is need for such a massive uh, public transport. And there are other alternatives also in terms of public transport for other routes. And, and I think that a more focused rail system would be more um, efficient and would serve the public interest in a better way. And that, that's a little bit my, my view. And I don't know, that's, that connects me maybe to another question. Uh, yeah, it's, it's efficiency and reforms to increase the efficiency of the sector. At the end of the day, there is a lot of public financing of the, uh, of the sector. Do you think that enough is being made in terms of directing those uh, funds to those services, the rail services that are more necessary? So, so do you think that efficiency is promoted through the financing, or the funding of the industry? Oh, no, there is a lot to be done, that's for sure. Uh, railways, especially the infrastructure, is still very much political. You can see that in Spain, as in Sweden, politicians and pressure groups, they want more railways of every kind, high speed, especially, and they think that high speed rail will solve all problems. What we do need are tools, uh, let's call it socio-economic cost-benefit analysis or whatever. We need better tools to evaluate what kind of railway we want. And that this work has been going on. And the top researchers, I might say, the top researchers in Europe, they have been working on this for 30, 40 years. But to convince politicians that you should not build a railway, that's a task. 
And even probably more difficult is the decision about closing a service that has been operative for, for a long time. I mean, yeah, these yes. are political decisions, yeah. Mm -hmm. So maybe, uh, Bertil, we can focus, I mean, on, on international services. I mean, in Florence, we do a lot of um, yeah, EU regulations. So these international cross-border services are an issue of, of concern, of course, they are part of the single Rail, European rail area are international cross-border services. So do you see a larger role for these international services in Europe? Yes, why not? But they do not have to be high speed. That depends on the kind of market you, you, you are looking for. And I believe the Commission mentioned the maximum speed of 160. I, I think that's really commuter speed. Why not go for 200? But because 200 is 200, it's not 300 high speed. I think that if the Commission or the EU should have a rail, it should be to create corridors like for, for freight, but to have governments uh, financing railing stock, etc. I'm doubtful about this. This should in that case be done on strictly neutral uh, on a strictly neutral ground and not favoring the incumbent railways or anything like that. This was proposed uh, a year ago and I hated it. Maybe, Bertel, we can break this issue because as you were raising, I think there are very different scenarios. I mean, on the one hand, we have freight transport. And uh, I don't know how you see it. I mean, for me, that's where there is a very clear opportunity to yes. increase um, international services to have really rail services with long distances, that's where rail is really competitive. And I think where there is a lot of room for improvement. I don't know what you think about it. Oh, yes. The freight corridors are a major improvement that we have only seen the beginning of. There is a, a lot of debate on uh, whether yeah, corridors, as they have been defined, are enough or there should be more uh, EU coordination in different forms, even the creation of a European uh, rail euro control uh, in order to uh, facilitate more coordination for uh, international services. So, so reinforcing the corridors into a one integrated system. Um, would you be for that, such a measure? In a way, yes. Uh, actually, when I worked at the Commission then many years ago, uh, this was uh, this was discussed. This was before the corridors, but. I think that the corridors know where their trains are, but some kind of European control, especially for freight, I would say, that would be necessary, but I'm not at all sure how it would work. Yeah, it's, it's a complex, it's a challenge even from pure institutional perspective, but at the same time, it's more and more clear that uh, more coordination in terms of slot allocation, uh, planning, and also traffic management when you have some disturbance. Uh, is necessary because really, um, yeah, I mean, these long distance services crossing several member states for freight uh, are having very relevant uh, operative issues. I mean, punctuality is really very poor and shippers are really looking forward to have better services. Yeah. So, May um, I just bring up what happened a couple of years ago in the southern Germany, the so-called Rastatt accident where a tunnel caved in and the extremely important Frankfurt-Basel railway line was blocked for several weeks. And the chaos with the rerouting, et cetera, was a disaster, I must say. So when things like that happen, well, you can't protect yourself 
from everything. But, but when things like that happen, we really need better contingency measures. Then uh, we have another issue where I think that the EU should play a very important role. And it is these cross-border services, which are public service obligations connecting uh, border region. And I, I think also it's an example where there are uh, opportunities to improve the service for citizens. What do you think? Oh, absolutely. But you have to, as usual, you have to consider the market first. It's difficult to create a market, but if you have a lot of cross-border commuting and travel to universities and for shopping, and people go by car or by bus, surely rail has an opportunity. I was sorry to read that the cooperation between Renfe and SNCF for the Trans-Pyrenees traffic is going down the drain. It's more, it's a lot more nice. It's a lot more pleasant to to um, report that last year across the Öresund between Denmark and Sweden, there were 144 trains per day, mostly passenger. So things are possible. But this took 15 years to create it between Denmark and Sweden. So hard work, hard work, hard work. Yeah, virtually this is hard work, but at the same time, it's uh, uh, there are regulatory challenges to it, and, and there is a, a reform in the middle, uh, also in terms of cross-border services, because we were used to have cross-border services through very close cooperation between incumbents. That's the way in Europe to build these cross-border services. Yes, but now with the reform and with the introduction of competition and uh, and also with the rules on public service obligations, uh, cross-border services cannot be warranted as traditionally just through this very close cooperation between incumbents. Uh, we have to be more creative. We have to adapt to the new rules, and that's that's a challenge. Yes, and then uh, maybe yeah, the final one. So we we cover freight. We cover cross-border PSO services, then, then, then we have the, uh, yeah, the, the long-distance passenger services. You know? That's where uh, yeah, the Commission just issued some uh, policy recommendations and announced the program to, to foster these services. So you were referring, we were discussing about high-speed services. That's uh, one of the, um, the angles to it. There is another one uh, which has been very popular and uh, discussed over the last couple of years, which are night trains. Ah, <laughs> ah night trains. So what, what, what is your view on night trains? Well, basically, I'm not very, not very positive because of the costs. I mean, if you run a night train with couchettes, you can get squeeze in 60 people just as in a day train. But all these dreams about sleeping cars with uh, your own shower and toilet, it is extremely difficult to uh, get any money through that. However, I live in a very big country, uh, Sweden, almost as big as Spain, and it's a very long country, and we do have night trains, certainly. Some of them are run on commercial terms. Some of them are subsidized after competitive tendering, of course, and the national uh, subsidized trains, they receive the subsidy of less than one euro per train kilometer and that's not much really and the real new thing is uh, that Trafikverket, the uh, tendering authority in sweden they have now signed a contract with sj the incumbent to run services between stockholm and hamburg but they are only subsidized as far as the danish german border 
And that subsidy is a lot more, I think about 15 euros per franc kilometer. So things happen. And uh, if services can be run, well, this is uh, the usual rule for rail, I should say. If services can be run on a commercial terms, they should. If they cannot, we must have competitive tendering, not direct awards, thank you. So yeah, that this is what we were discussing before, that these new night trains, uh, long distance cross-border services, they have to adapt to the new framework. So, yes. so we have, they have to adapt to this competitive framework and in case some kind of compensation for a public service obligation wants to be introduced, they have, uh, it has to be adapted in the framework of, of, of this compensation of public service obligations. But yes. then this is particularly challenging when you have a service across member states. So you have different uh, member states, different entities defining the public service obligation, and then different possibilities to, uh, to finance them. Uh, do you think that uh, these complex cross-border services they can be put for tender as a regular PSO service in the sense that, uh, I mean, what would you be putting for tender? The whole route, just one piece as you were referring to, but then would the uh, compensation be uh, somehow affecting also the rest of the route outside the member state? Should uh, Is it possible to coordinate different tenders across the different member states? I don't know, it's, it's a complex issue. How do you think it should be managed? First of all, it's a good thing to have two neighboring countries uh, if who are both favorable of deregulation and competitive tendering. That is the case of Denmark and, and Sweden, at least. So these services between Denmark and Sweden, they have been tendered out for 15 years. Certainly, not everything went well for, for the first time, so they have been re-tendered a couple of times. And... Uh, this works. The problems are not connected to the tendering or the contract. The problems are connected to overcrowding and congestion on, on the whole. So a, a lot of yeah, a reform of the industry, new challenges in the form of, for instance, of these new cross-border um, long-distance services. Um, do you think that public funding uh, should be fostering uh, all the players, member states, railway undertakings, infrastructure managers to follow this agenda and to be more efficient in the provision of the services? Oh, yes. We must remember that no member state has unlimited funds. So uh, we, we must have such contracts or whatever we call them. There are examples. In the UK, well, they're out of the union now. In the UK, they had perhaps a too complicated system. The uh, transaction costs were enormous. But there are such examples in, in uh, many other member states. In Germany, they have something called LUFV, Leistungs- und Finanzierungsvereinbarung. But please note it's called Vereinbarung, not Vertrag. So it's an agreement, not a contract. This is 500 pages in German, so I have not read it that much. Okay, Bertil, so that was my last question. Thank you very much uh, for the conversation. Uh, I think we cover interesting topics and, uh, and you express uh, very clear views on, on some of these topics. So again, thank you very much. Thank you, Juan. Thank you for listening to Transport for Future. Stay tuned for the next episodes.